Well, I'm excited to kick off the book of Daniel. And so here's what I'll tell you. Probably for about the next 12 weeks, we're going to be in this book. And we're going to really deep dive into this thing and see what is it the Lord's trying to teach us about himself and also transform us. Uh, and so one, I'd say in these next 12 weeks, it's going to be good for you to have a copy of the word. We always have blue ones at the back. You can grab one now. That's not going to distract anybody. Uh, so that you can t- kind of follow along. I would encourage you over these next weeks to be reading each chapter along as part of your own devotion. So that as you come in here, uh, we can begin to hear from the Lord. Uh, this week specifically, I had one of my kids, they need to go back to school so they get in a regular rhythm and go back to sleep. But one of my kids was uh, <laughs> having trouble going to bed. They're feeling a little scared. So I laid in the floor of the room for like two hours and had the deepest conversations in the world with them. But we got out their children's Bible and, and I said, let's just read a story. Let's try to like calm down. And, and they asked for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Uh, there's something about that story that they love the idea that these, these boys were in this fiery furnace and yet Jesus protected them, cared for them, saw them through that they came out unscathed. Uh, and so there's this promise, right, of God's faithfulness, that, that he's reliable, that he's trustworthy, that he's with us and for us. He's, he, he, it's important, but here's what I'll tell you. My fear in going through the book of Daniel uh, is that these are like the, the famous children's story, right? If you grew up in church, you heard these a thousand times. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you probably know about Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And when we see these great narratives, these stories of like heroic believers and followers of God, sometimes what we have a propensity to do is, is been to kind of lift them up as the hero of the story. And look how Daniel was faithful and look at his courage and look at how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't bow down to Nebuchadnezzar. And all of a sudden we lift them up and we have missed what Daniel is really trying to tell us about in these stories. I mean, the hero of the book of Daniel is God. The hero of the book of Daniel is the Messiah, Jesus, that is coming. And so what Daniel's trying to teach you and I through this book is not how you can be the hero of your story and be this courageous Christian. Yes, are we, are we to stand strong and are we to, to walk faithfully with the Lord and use our lives for his glory? Absolutely, but not so that we can be the hero of our stories. We're trying to show that there is a greater hero. As one commentator said, the book of Daniel is about a greater Daniel, a greater Jesus that came and he lived an ex- as an exile, left his throne in heaven and came and lived amongst us and defeated sin and death in the grave. He is he's the story. He's the reason. He's the purpose. And so this morning, what we're going to try to do, and it's going to be a lot. Y'all just buckle up. We're going to get in it. It's going to be good, though. I told Katie this morning as we we're getting ready, some people are going to leave and be like, that was a lot. And then some of y'all are going to love it. So I don't know which category you fall into, but we're going to get into it this morning because here's what I think. I think we've got to back up for a minute. And before we deep dive into the weeds of this story, really, we need to look at this massive story that God has been writing since the beginning of the garden. The story of scripture is about the kingdom of God. His glory, his name, his renown, him pushing back darkness and and making his name known among the earth. So it's about his kingdom. But but there's this worldly kingdom as well, the kingdom of Satan. There's a real enemy and his goal through all of the Old Testament until Jesus gets there is to put an end to this kingdom. 
Now that Jesus has reigned victoriously, he's still working to try to, to put an end to this kingdom, but he's already been defeated. And so for us to understand what is going on in the book of Daniel, I think we've got to back up to this large view of what God has been doing in salvation history. And I think for some of you, this will probably be the first time you've heard these things. And, and if, you'll, if you'll just stay with me, I think you're going to see some amazing things of who God is and what he has been doing and this part that we're playing in the midst of it. I mean, it's, it's got me excited this morning. And so here's what I want to tell you. In the beginning, right, we're at the garden. Sin fractures things, right? This was the kingdom of God set up. The garden was supposed to be kind of heaven on earth, his people in right relationship with him. And Satan already has come from heaven, said, I, I want to be God. I want to rule this thing. And he brings sin in and fractures that. And then for the rest of this story of history, we've got the people of God, which is going to be represented in this story by Israel, right? The Jews, we are the people of God. Now we're a part of this Israel, his people, his promises, and then you've got the kingdom of the world. And Babylon, which is going to be talked about in Daniel, is used throughout Scripture as kind of the kingdom of the world, Satan's kingdom. And these are real historical things. And so before we get to this point in history, right, Daniel is six chapters of biography, like legit things that happened, like a, a, a place in a time. And then there's six chapters of prophecy, which may confuse all of us by the time we get through this book, but we'll try to get through it. But in these first six chapters, I want you to see where are we in, this, in God's story of salvation. So, so what the Lord has done throughout Scripture, he's, he's set up these covenants. right? A, a covenant, if you're, if you're in Christ, you're in a covenant right now. And this covenant is this idea that God says, hey, I, I'm going to do some things and I'm going to remain faithful, and I'm going to exact judgment, but, but also now we are in this covenant of his faithfulness, and we have things to do as well. So his promise is, regardless of your faithfulness, people, my kingdom, I'm going to see this thing through because it's for my name's sake. And so even in the garden, right, you got Adam and Eve, sin enters in, and God comes and says, look, I'm going to bring through your seed, Eve, a Satan, a serpent crusher. There's going to be this seed that comes, this, this uh, king that will come and crush the head of the serpent. That starts day one, these two kingdoms divided. Israel, God's kingdom, and Babylon. And God says, man, I'm gonna bring the serpent crushers through your, your seed. And so for the rest of this time now, you've got Satan, who is still active today, really moving in spiritual realms in our lives, trying to squash that. And so the very next uh, covenant that, that's important to know about is Noah, right? You get all of this rebellion of the people of God, and, and he's going, okay, then I, I'm just going to wipe everybody out. I'm starting with Noah. He does that, and then he makes this promise. He goes, okay, I'm never going to destroy the world again. And, and so Noah, what, you, what you're going to see is a sign of this covenant, this promise, is, is a rainbow. And when you see that, you can be reminded that I'm not going to destroy the world again, and I'm still working towards this, the seed of the woman that's going to crush Satan. And so this next, this next covenant is put in place. These are all like amping up to Jesus. From there, you get the Abrahamic covenant, covenant. Father Abraham. He comes to Abraham and he says, now I'm going to make an actual nation, an actual people. My kingdom is going to have a name. It's going to have a face. And it's going to be the people of Israel. 
And so he comes to Abraham and he says, in you, I'm going to, I'm going to flourish you and make you a kingdom. You're going to, your, your descendants are going to be like the stars of the sky. And all the generations, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because of you, my kingdom, my people. And he makes this promise with him. And he says, hey, look, the sign of this is going to be uh, circumcision. I want you to do that. And I want you to be reminded that you're set apart as my people. And so this is now coming up. Now we've got the people, not, not just a, a seed that's going to come and squash Satan, not just this promise that he's not going to destroy us, but now there's a real people that are his kingdom starting to flourish. And then you get to Moses. He leads the people out of Egypt. They get to the mountain, right? They're in the wilderness, and, and he gives the Ten Commandments to Moses. He sets up the law, all of this lofty rules, that were really set in place to show that you and I cannot please God on our own. The, the purpose was to go, this is what it looks like to be perfect. You can't get that and you need, you need a savior. You need this serpent crusher to come. And so he gets this law in place and he, and he exacts some, um, some blessing and cursing in this. And this is important. So for the book of Daniel, these next few verses are really important for you to understand what God is doing. And so as he sets up this covenant, he tells Moses, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests that will bless the earth. So all of a sudden you've got the people of Israel. Now they're going to be a kingdom of priests that's going to bless the earth. He's given them the law. He says, you've got to follow this, and it will be blessing. I'll be faithful to blessing, and I'll be faithful to cursing and judgment. Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 2. Here's the, the blessing that God says to Moses about this covenant. He says, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I commanded you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord. So he's going, all right, Israel, I will set you above every nation because I'm in this covenant with you, but you got to remain faithful. You got to keep my commandments. You got to follow me. And then he says, but, but the opposite of that is going to be true as well. There's another thing I'll be faithful to, and it's judgment or it's discipline or it's cursing. Deuteronomy 28, 15, just a little bit later, he says this. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. He says, look, I've promised a serpent crusher. I promise I won't destroy you because of your wickedness anymore. I'm going to send somebody to eradicate that, to make that, that, to make that sin, to, to deal with it, that we can be in relationship. And I'm going to set up this covenant of faith, faithfulness that I will bless you, but you've got to follow me. You're my people. You're going to represent me. You're going to be set apart. So you, you need to follow me in this covenant. And then if you remember, they continue to rebel and they go, man, we want a king. We want to be like all the other nations of the world, Israel says. And so God says, okay, he sets up a king. Saul's the first king. Um, then, then David becomes the king, and he's this anointed one, and there's a new covenant in the Old Testament that he sets up. It's called the Davidic covenant. Really, if you add ick on the end of any of their names, you've got their covenants. So the Davidic covenant, here's what he says. He says, because you've asked for a king, I'm going to anoint you, David, as king. And out of your line, out of your lineage, from your home, your seed will be this serpent crusher. He will come through you. So there's going to be a day that all the world will be blessed because a real king will come that gets it right. And he's going to come through you. I promise this to you. The Messiah was given. 
And so for the rest of the Old Testament, what you've got is people waiting for this, this king, this, this seed of the woman who's going to come through the line of David, who's from Judah, that was promised. And they've got to keep this, this law that's waiting, and they can't, they can't do it, and they need help. And God continues to, to give them blessing. And then as they fall away, he kind of curses them or d- gives them dis- uh, discipline to lead them back to himself. This takes place for thousands of years. And then finally you get to the birth of Jesus and there's a brand new covenant that will never be changed. Jesus shows up and he's the line of David. Jesus shows up and he lives and fulfills this law perfectly. He does it all. And he goes to the cross and he dies and he resurrects. And this new covenant that God has set up for us is this. If you will trust in him as savior, he will be faithful to you. You will be his. You will be a part of his kingdom, an eternal kingdom, something that will never go away. This is, this is the hope that we have in him. And he goes, even in the midst, as Christians now, I, I, will, I will give you faithful blessing in this covenant, and then I'm also gonna be faithful to discipline you so that it pushes you to me. Like literally, this is the giant story of salvation history. And you see it happening throughout all of the scripture, and you're going, oh my gosh, like, man, this is This is real. <laughs> And God knows what he's doing. And there's never a moment where he doesn't know what he's doing and what he's trying to accomplish. And he's done it. And everything was pointing towards Jesus. And so as we get into the book of Daniel, here's what we need to know. In between these kings and David and this covenant, and in between Jesus coming, this, this happens for Israel. And they get to this place where they're rebelling. And God says, look, I'm gonna be righteous and faithful to my covenant And so I'm going to exact some cursing to you. And what we're going to read in the book of Daniel is 70 years where the country of Israel, this is history, these aren't made up stories, the country of Israel is demolished. They had a temple where they worshiped God and it was supposed to hold the presence of God. It's laid barren. And they take all of the people of Israel, so many of the people of Israel, and they put them into exile in different countries to be servants to a foreign king. And what you have now is is God's kingdom dispersed amongst the world's kingdom. And can you imagine, 70 years is a generation. (laughs) Like, if that was your whole life, what you would experience is the darkness of being in exile. And that's where we pick up in this book. You've got the people waiting for a Messiah. They have these promises, and now all of a sudden, the kingdom of God, the people of Israel, his chosen ones in covenant with him, have been demolished. And and what is he doing? Where is he? What is he trying to accomplish? This is what the book of Daniel is about. I love what one commentator said, Sinclair Ferguson. He said, the heart of the book's message is of course the good news of the kingdom of God. Nations and empires, thrones and dominions will rise and fall, but the city of God will endure. His kingdom will last forever and the gates of hell shall not withstand it. This is the story of Daniel. And so with that being said, what we're going to look at is verses 1 through 10 this morning. And we're going to stay big. We're going to stay way up here thinking about what God's doing. And then the next several weeks, we'll kind of get into the stories of Daniel and their faithfulness. But today, I want you to be thinking about this this covenant of salvation and the promise of what God's trying to do in history. And so with that being said, let's read verses 1 through 10, and then we'll break it down. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. 
And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded uh, Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning and competent to stand in the king's place and to teach them literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chiefs of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. And so here we pick up in the middle of this idea, and, and, and there's this the siege of the people of God. Uh, their nation, this is historical records, their nation is demolished by the Babylonians. And, and so I want to kind of jump in and see what we can see God doing in these moments. And so first you have Jehoiakim, king of Judah. All right, so again, think about this. There, there's coming this, this serpent crusher who's going to be of the seed of David who is from Judah and now the king of Judah it says that he did evil in the sight of God. In fact, in 2 Chronicles 36, 5 through 7, it says this. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. Uh, we're not going to see much of Jehoiakim again, but I want you to just, uh, the Bible teaches a little bit about what happens to him, and I want you to kind of hear what happened with this guy. Uh, one, what you've got is his, his brother and his father. Uh, his father was a pretty good king, but there's this, this constant kind of uh, Israel falling away to evil things, right? We've got this covenant that God set up. He said, if you're faithful, I'll bless you. If you're not, I'm going to discipline you. And so what you have is this kind of trajectory of the kings falling away from God, worshiping other things, not doing what the Lord has said. And so he continues to rebuke them and say, hey, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me. And finally he's like, okay, enough's enough. And and so what's interesting about Jehoiakim, he goes into, we won't even see this, but I just want to tell you now because it's kind of interesting. He goes into Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar. Stays there for three years. Kind of Nebuchadnezzar makes him his servant, right? This is the king of Israel. Now you're my servant. After three years, he says, you can go back uh, to Judah. But you're going to kind of serve as like not a real king. You're going to be under me, but you can be there. And if, if you know anything, in, in the prophetic books, there, there's the book of Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah is just, he's the voice of God. And so Jeremiah's book is written for this time of, of Babylonian captivity, And Jeremiah is saying, look, God's telling us if we'll return back to him, if we'll repent, he'll be faithful, he'll bless us, he'll bring us back as a people, but we've got to turn to him. And and Jeremiah writes about this. He says Jehoiakim eventually is like, hey, let's, this guy, this prophet Jeremiah, let's bring him into the court. I really want to hear what he's telling us to do. Maybe this will help us. And it says that he brought him in, or he brought the scroll in that Jeremiah had written, the book of Jeremiah. They start reading it, and in like every section he reads, he says that Jehoiakim literally gets a knife, cuts that section off, and burns it. 
He's like, hey, God's telling us we gotta repent. We gotta humble ourselves. We gotta turn back to him. He's like, I hate that, turn that. And literally it says he had zero regard for what God was telling him to do. Zero regard for the discipline of the Lord. And it wasn't just a few years later that Nebuchadnezzar ends up killing that dude, throwing over the wall of the city and he's laying out there dead. Final judgment had come. There was no regard for this returning back to the Lord. And so he says, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, if you underline in your Bible, this is, this is probably the most important verse of the entire book. Here's what it says, verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The Lord gave up his people and his kingdom into the hands of Babylon, into the hands of Satan's kingdom. Now, why in the world would he do that? He gave it up. In fact, the word used here, we've talked about this before, the word Lord is usually Yahweh in Hebrew in the Old Testament. It's kind of that covenantal, faithful God. This word right here is Adonai. The word Adonai, what it it kind of holds with it is this idea that God is sovereign and he's the ruler of everything. You, You think Daniel did that on accident? He's going, man, in our, in our nation's history where the temple of God is destroyed, our people are taken as slaves, Adonai, who is sovereign, ruling over everything, gave our nation to Nebuchadnezzar. This is a big deal, church. It's a big deal to realize that, that we are able to trust God. We have to know that God is sovereignly ruling in all things. Like the Lord is not asleep right now. I think if, we, if we're honest... <laughs> If we were Israel, if we were God's people, or even if we're the church, and all of a sudden we see this darkness come against the church, and we see this persecution of the church, maybe that comes one day. There would probably be some of us going, is God asleep right now? Has he forgotten his promises? Is he really faithful to what he said he would be faithful to? And Daniel's going, absolutely. Absolutely, he will bring this upon our people and be faithful Listen to what Isaiah 39, five through seven says. I find this fascinating. 140 years before this moment in history, here's what the prophet said to the king. Isaiah 39, five through seven. says, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the place of the king of Babylon. 140 years before the prophet from the voice of God says, hey, listen, you need to hear this. The Lord's already determined this is going to happen in 140 years. He's going to take you away to Babylon. Your sons, your daughters, they're going to be exiles. Like, God was very much on the throne during this time. He was orchestrating these things. He's not causing sin. He's not causing evil, but he's using an evil king and he's using the sin of an evil king to accomplish his purposes because he's that powerful. He's that sovereign. He's that trustworthy. Leviticus 26. Dude, if you ever wanna read a verse where it's like old school judgment stuff, and you're like, I just love that stuff because I know everybody does, right? Leviticus chapter 26 is intense, but I wanna give you just a couple of things because this is what's happening. Why is God being faithful? Because he's being faithful to the cursing and the discipline for his glory and the good of his people. 
Leviticus 26, 23 through 25 says this. And if by this the discipline, by this discipline, you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you. And I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins, and I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. (laughs) Daniel's saying, hey, look, God's still being faithful to his covenant right now. He promised he would bless us if we follow him. He would curse us if we don't. And somehow he uses that for our good. And so the Lord says, hey, because of your sin, I'm about to exact my sword against you. He goes a little further in chapter 26, verse 33, and it says this. I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be laid to waste. Now, if we go back to the beginning of this sermon, this is to Moses, right? This is the Mosaic Covenant, where he's saying, here's the law, here's all the things to do. He'll bless us if we follow him, he'll curse us if we don't, and he says if we don't, his sword will come against us, but it will be because he's faithful to his covenant. Because he loves us, he's going to do this in us to return us back to him. But the gospel seen even in Leviticus, you go through all this hardcore stuff and then the very end of it, verse 40 and 42 says this. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart Here's the words, are humbled, and they make amends for their iniquity. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. Even in the midst of his faithfulness to to discipline, he's going, man, all I'm looking for is a humbled heart. Like, if if you'll do that, he's telling He's telling Jehoiakim, if, if you'll do this through the, sir, through the prophet Jeremiah, if you'll just do this, man, I, I, will, I will bring you back and I will elevate you above all nations. And there was no regard for the discipline of the Lord. That's why Hebrews is important, man. Hebrews 12 says this. It says, my son did not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. This is New Testament. This is us. Paul saying, or whoever wrote Hebrews, we don't know if it's Paul, I think it's Paul, but anyway. He's saying, look, man, don't, don't regard lightly when the Lord disciplines you. It's because he loves you. It's because he's trying to do something amazing in you. What he's trying to do is let you let go of the things of the earth that aren't gonna satisfy you and bring you back to him. That you would worship him more fully. And so listen to that, embrace that. Know that he loves you. He's still faithful even when he's doing these things. But Jehoiakim goes, man, I'll have nothing to do with that. And so we're, we're in exile, Daniel is, for 70 years because of this. There's no returning. And then the next part that's interesting to me, here, here's what I want you to think about now as we finish this. We're going to move quickly through this last part. I want you to think about these big ideas of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Babylon. Like Satan, a real enemy that longs to still kill and destroy all of that God wants to do in the world and through us. Think about his tactics of what he's doing in this moment. He knows that the serpent crusher is coming. He knows that God has said, I'm going to put an end to your reign on the earth. And so he's doing everything he can to stop that. And look what happens. It says he brought, uh, we can look at verse two. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, 
king of Judah into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God and brought them into the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in this treasury of his God. What you need to know about this, right, is you've got 100 plus year old things that they're using in the temple to worship God. And so what Nebuchadnezzar does, he's like, man, I'm, I'm doing away with the kingdom of Judah. I'm doing away with the kingdom of this, this God of the Hebrews. So he takes the things that were sacred to them to worship God. He says, I'm not going to put these in, in my temples of my pagan gods. Think about, I mean, think about the Lord allowing this to happen. He's like, no, take, take the stuff. Take the stuff they used to worship me. Put it in your kingdom. Put it into your temples. Put it into your fake gods, your pagan gods, and watch what I'll do. And so this happens. The next part's even more important, I think. What, what, what do they do from here? What, what does Satan do from here to, to blot out the kingdom of God? We've got the seed of the woman coming from the lineage of David from Judah. He's like, give me the king of Judah and give me their world changer type of teenagers. I, I, want, I want the smartest. I want the best looking. I, I, want, I want kids full of wisdom these kids that have been brought up that will, that will be the leaders of Israel, I want all of them. I want you to bring them to me, and here's what we're going to do to them. He says, give me the ones without blemish, of good appearance, as is verse 4, skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's place, to do what? To teach them literature and language of the Chaldeans. He's going, I, I want to take these young kids that will be world changers and we're just going to reprogram them. I, I, I want them to, to think like us. I want them to know our gods. I want them to know our religion, our language. I don't want them to even remember Judah anymore. We're, 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 we're done with that kingdom. It's gone. This is the Babylonian kingdom. And so then he goes on. He says, verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. Why? Well, now their sustenance comes from this king, right? God's not the provider of what they need. This king's given them the best food, the best drink. We're, we're going to follow him. We're going to rely on him. We're literally going to have our entire heart and mind and spirit reprogrammed to be Babylonians, to be followers and world changers for the Babylonian kingdom, not the kingdom of God. And they said this was kind of like an experiment, like a test. It says they were educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they would stand before the king. He's going, I want you to do this for three years, and then I want you to bring me the best of the best, and whoever kind of passes the test, I'm going to let these people be kind of my servants, and they're going to influence all of their kingdom so that they don't remember this God of the Hebrews. And for Satan, right? Like, this is, this is how he still works. This is a great tactic. He's going, there's a serpent crusher that's going to... to, going to undo what I'm trying to do in this world so I'm going to stomp out Judah I'm going to stomp out its best teenagers I'm going to reprogram to be uh, followers of my kingdom and, and then this whole thing will go away in fact to the point that he gives them new names that's the last part look what it says among these was Daniel Hananiah, Mishael Azariah of the tribe of Judah and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah, he called Shadrach, Mishael, he called Meshach, and, and uh, Azariah, he called Abednego. For the Hebrews, naming your kids was a really important thing. It usually had some type of worship context to it. And he just took their, their Hebrew worship of God names and turned them into names that worship pagan gods. Right? It'd be like, we get taken into captivity and they, they give us Islamic names that are worshiping a different god. 
This is what's happened. And I would imagine that in that moment, it's pretty dark. (laughs) I would imagine in that moment that the people of God are going, man, we may have lost this thing. And probably Satan's going, I've done it. Like that, that promised seed in the garden, I just stamped that out. Judah's gone. Israel's gone. My kingdom will reign supreme on the earth. In Revelations 12, 1 through 5, there's this moment where it, it gives a, the, kind of this picture of Satan and Mary giving birth. I want, you, I want you to hear this. It says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. This is Mary. She was pregnant and was crying out at birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. This is Satan. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. This is his his, uh, demons. And And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. There's this moment, right, that God brings Jesus to the earth. He started in the garden, and you've got over and over Satan trying to ruin the kingdom of God. And then Mary gives birth, and it gives us this picture that Satan's waiting to devour this child. You want to talk about darkness in the kingdom of God for a moment? Think about the cross. Like, think about this moment where the Son of God has come, the Messiah has come, the serpent crusher has been born, and now Satan knows here he is. So what can I do? What's my last move to finish this? And he puts him on the cross with his own people that reject him, and he dies. And if there was ever a moment where darkness ruled, right, do y'all remember what it says uh, in the last hours of Jesus' birth before he kind of lays his head and gives a spirit over to the Lord? It says that the land became dark. Like there was physical darkness in this moment. And for Satan, he thinks, man, maybe my kingdom will reign finally. But here's what Isaiah says. It talks about the suffering servant in Isaiah, and it says that the, it was the will of God to crush him for our sin. It was the will of God to crush Jesus for you and I. The Lord gave the kingdom over to Nebuchadnezzar. And Jesus comes in this covenant that he's promised would come and he says, now I'm going to crush my son so that I might redeem my people. And it looks so backwards to everything else. But you know what's amazing? If you, if you read through Revelations, there, there's this part at the end that I hope will kind of give you chills. Honestly, it's amazing. <laughs> Revelation 5.5, 5, John sees this vision. He's going, who, who is worthy to open these scrolls and bring salvation for the people of God? Who's worthy to make this everlasting kingdom come to, come to fruition? And here's what it says in Revelation 5.5. 5. And one, uh, and I'm sorry, it says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. The lion of the tribe of Judah, Jehoiakim's kinfolk. <laughs> right, Judah, what we're going to see in Daniel is that God gives over this kingdom 
But Satan did not win. Like he's still sovereign in the darkness. And he's accomplishing his purposes that we would never think could happen. He's the line of the tribe of Judah. He's the seed, the root of David. Because he stood with David. He said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. That from your line will be salvation for the world. And the Bible says we, we don't have to weep anymore because of this. I mean, how, how amazing is it when you begin to see historical things of God moving in people and saying these things would happen and they, they come to fruition? That even in the midst of darkness, he is accomplishing what he wants to do in you and I. Like there's never a day where he's not reigning and ruling over the earth over the church. And you know what we're going to see? He sends out Daniel and his friends as exiles and really what he does in the middle of this this discipline or this judgment is he sends them out as missionaries. They're they're going to transform a kingdom. Like God's going to use them in ways they couldn't even fathom in the midst of darkness and brokenness for their whole life, 70 years. And and so here's how I want to finish. Man, we have to be a people that understand that God is faithful and sovereign to his covenant people. There there is nothing that you and I are going to walk through that he's not ruling over, that he's not reigning supreme. He's going to use the messed up stuff in our life and somehow use that for his glory and our good. The hardest things that you and I walk through, he's gonna turn those for good because he's faithful to his covenant. And he's gonna bring discipline for you and I, but we need to be a people that look at that and don't regard that lightly and go, man, what are you trying to do in me? You're trying to turn me back towards you because you are the author of life. The most loving thing that God can do is discipline us. Because for you and I to be fulfilled, to be satisfied in life, he's the only source. And so the only time he disciplines us is when he wants to go, hey, you're trying to find that in a different source, let me move you back to me. It's the most loving, gracious, merciful, faithful thing he can do to bring some things that make us let go of the world. And that's what we're seeing in the book of Daniel. We're seeing God's sovereign plan from before he spoke the world into existence fulfilled. And he's gonna do that in you and I. Because the Satan crusher did come. He did defeat him on the grave. Like Satan is is on borrowed time right now. He's still very active, right? He just doesn't know when to quit, maybe, I don't know, or maybe he still thinks I can, I can finish this in the end. And so right now what he wants to do is take the kingdom of God, his people, and distract them and deter them and make them forget who the Lord is. And so we're living this life in this battle that God has already won and equipped us to live. And so we walk faithfully as his servants for his glory and our good. Here's what it's gonna take, church. Man, if you don't know Jesus, here's, what, here's the thought that I just think was overwhelming for me. That before you drew a breath on the earth, that God had already predetermined how he was gonna save his people and he had you in mind. Before we, thousands of years before we drew a breath, he had you in mind and he said, here's, here's how salvation will come to you. I will give you this blessing. I will give you this kingdom. I will give you eternity. And he says, what does it take? It takes humbling and repentance and turning to him as king.
And so th- this is what we're about to dive into. And this isn't, this isn't storybook stuff for our kids. This is the history of God working in real people, in real times and spaces for his glory and the good of his people. We can trust him with whatever comes this week because he's sovereign and he's faithful. Let's pray. And so God, I thank you. I thank you that you are trustworthy and that your purpose is your name and your renown and you bring us into that as part of that. God, I thank you that in the midst of what would look like the enemy winning, you were actually orchestrating. In the midst of darkness, you were actually doing all that you wanted to accomplish in your kingdom and in your people. I have no doubt this morning that there's people in this room that are walking in some dark valleys. And so I pray that today they would be reminded that you are sovereign and good, that you're in control, that you're faithful and you're trustworthy. I thank you that the point of the book of Daniel is not for us to be awesome Daniels. It's that you were a better Daniel for us. And so God, I just pray that over these next weeks as we look at this book, that you would do work in us. I pray that our faith grows deep. That we're reminded that our 90 to 100 years here at best is like this little blip on the timeline of what you've been doing since the beginning. And that somehow in our lives, you're going to accomplish all of these things you've promised from the beginning. Jesus, we thank you that you overcame. We thank you that you're victorious. We thank you that Satan has already lost. We thank you that you are worthy to open the scroll. And so we trust you, God. Man, this thing's so much bigger than we think about most days. What does stir us up to worship and fellowship? And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.